to the Center for Women in Leadership NASP podcast. We are so excited to be here today. My name is Jessica Gomez, and I am one of the co-fellows for the Center. And with us today is my other co-fellow, Dr. Andrea Thompson. Dr. Thompson, why don't you go ahead and take it from here and introduce our special guest today? Oh, most certainly. So, of course, everyone knows that this year we're focusing on, that's the Center for Women in Leadership, we're focusing on how she leads, how she leads. And within that book, because we're doing our regular book study, we're talking about that long and winding road to leadership, the fact that the journey does not have to be linear and that it takes having a vision, seeking opportunities, grasping opportunities, and preparing to take those opportunities. Who best could we talk to about this but Dr. Jackie Wilson? So we have with us today, Dr. Jackie Wilson, known as the Executive Director of the National Policy Board for Educational Administration, that's NPBEA. But this remarkable woman in leadership is also a wife, mother, grandmother, and friend to so many women in leadership. And all this is in addition to contributing so much to education on a national level, as well as in her state of Delaware. So Jackie, welcome. Now, Jackie, as a woman in leadership, how do you balance all these roles and remain so positive and motivated? Well, thank you, Andrea and Jessica, for having me here today. Um, You know, that's a great question, Andrea. All are important to me, and balancing these roles and the responsibilities of each have been really a constant challenge for me as a woman who's tried to navigate this long and winding road of school leadership throughout my career. I've always been ambitious and very goal-focused, but and I need challenges that I like to call opportunities to keep me motivated and excited about my work. I kind of like to think of myself as creative and entrepreneurial, but I hope the word collaborator is used to describe the way I work to get things done. But with that being said, often as a woman, our ambition and conflict for us in the workplace because of our other responsibilities, particularly those in our personal life, like being a wife, being a mother, a daughter, a friend. And this conflict often creates this tension that we can very easily use as an excuse for not going after the things we want, for asking that that promotion that might require us to move or to work longer hours or to travel and have time away from our family. So I've always tried to consider the implications of my professional decisions regarding my personal life. And I have found that by sharing my goals and passions with my family and friends, that they've actually been great thought partners and cheerleaders who have encouraged my ambition. Wow, Jackie, it's like you are speaking right to me. Because, you know, I am in mid-career right now. I've been a principal for 13 years. And it's it's at a point where I'm appointed and I'm in a point in my life where I'm trying to see what's next, right? What's next for me? And I have found myself right where you're talking about that tension between 
how, what, what, what do I, what weighs heavier, right? What's more important. And I don't know that it's necessarily more important. It's just that there's this tension that you have to navigate through. And I love that idea that you shared about um, sharing your passions with your family and friends, because they truly are really great thought partners in helping you see things that you don't see yourself. Right. And helping you believe in yourself in ways that maybe you didn't believe in yourself. So I, I really that you hit it right on for me. And I think for, for many, many of our women who are who are listening this morning. So, Jackie, with that said, what is that passion then that drives your work? You mentioned all this tension that comes with deciding what to do next. But what is that passion that drives you to continue to excel in so many areas of your life? Well, you know, I think if you're passionate about things, it's really never like work. You know, it's just, oh my goodness, these are the things I love spending my time on. So, but the passion that, you know, I've been in public education for 50 years and I, I began my career um, in K-12 schools while I was still in college pursuing my bachelor's degree in elementary education at Salisbury University, which was a teacher's college in Maryland. So I was married, I had a small child and uh, I returned to work and school. And I began my career with this love of education because my father had been a superintendent and a principal and I had this love of schools. I was always in schools with my father. So I started my career in education as a part-time secretary in the front office and the rest of the day as a Title I paraprofessional. And at that time, I didn't realize how fortunate I was to work in classrooms where I was observing and practicing all the strategies that I was actually learning in my coursework um, in my bachelor's program. So I was able to ask the teachers questions, try it out this, uh, how to understand some of the teaching and learning that I was getting in my courses. So as I worked as a paraprofessional full-time over four years while completing my teaching degree, I really was getting what now we call those practicum experiences that, that student teachers get now, you know, it's in their program. At that time, it was not. So as soon as I finished my teaching degree, I was really driven and excited and excited because I wanted to be like the teachers whose classrooms I'd been in. So I was hired as a third grade teacher in a wonderful elementary school about 10 miles away from where I was working as a paraprofessional. And I was like full of this energy and excitement, ready to then pursue my passion of working with children and working in schools with other teachers. My goodness, Jackie, that is so timely. Because when I think about what we're doing to recruit teachers and grow your own, just to hear you say you started out in the front office as a part-time secretary, to hear you talk about moving from that to being a paraprofessional, and also even doing that while, say, while you're in college, that is just phenomenal. And I'm really hoping that our listeners use this part to help in their recruitment. So for the benefit of all the paraprofessionals out there and those who are entering the field of education, take us through that journey of starting out as a paraprofessional to classroom teacher and on to leadership. Well, it was it was the first job that I had as a teacher where I really started to pay attention to the role of the principal. And for new teachers, I cannot say this loudly and clearly enough, 
the principle matters so much as a novice teacher. So I was fortunate to work with this wonderful principal, uh, Mr. Ed Burton. I was hired the week before school opened. It was adding a new teaching unit to the school. There wasn't even a classroom for me. I was in a portable classroom. But Mr. Burton, that principal, made sure that the reading specialist in that school, who was really like a curriculum coordinator, was meeting with me daily to get the materials I needed, the books I needed, the furniture and supplies to answer every question that I had. And then he would meet with me to go over my classroom roster, my schedule, and to continue to support me throughout the year. And what I observed as a brand new teacher, now remember I had been a para, so I'd been in schools. So I was kind of used to that. <clears throat> but I noticed that he was engaged. He was knowledgeable. He cared. He was supportive. And he was exactly what I needed at that time because I had transferred from um, from one school to another and school schools are different. So that was exactly what I needed for my first year teaching. And I would have stayed in that school, but it was reduction in force during that time. So I was transferred to another school the next year. But I knew that Mr. Burton and I would find ourselves working together years later. And we did. Our paths did cross, and you'll hear more about that in a few minutes. So I continued my teaching career now back at Lord Baltimore Elementary School, where I had been a paraprofessional, and I taught fifth grade and then was moved into first grade. And first grade became my passion, and I remained in that role for many years. And because of my passion for teaching children to read, of course, that motivated me to go back to school to pursue a master's in reading and earn a certification as a reading specialist. And the following year, I got hired as a reading specialist for the school. And in that role, I began to take on a lot of administrative responsibilities in collaboration with the principal because we didn't have an assistant principal. So the role was like a curriculum coordinator at the school. And I made sure all the teachers had their books and their resources they needed. But I spent a lot of time assessing new students and students who were struggling in the classroom. And I found that I had to provide professional development to teachers who lacked the knowledge of reading diagnosis or mediation. And I found myself counseling parents when they were told their children would need special education services. And many times I supported the principal in how to be the instructional leader he needed to be to the staff. So this was just like an almost like a laboratory of learning for me as a new teacher. Now, as you as you talk about that, I was reflecting a little bit on my role as the principal and um, the importance of supporting our new teachers, because we all know that, um, you know, the principal can make or break it for a teacher wanting to stay in the in, in the in the job, especially as a new teacher. And the kinds of things that we're dealing with now in education post COVID um, and just the amount of initiatives that are put on our plates from year to year. This is more important than ever. But I mean, it's always important. But now I really feel like there's so many levels that a principal needs to be able to support their new teachers if they're going to make it because there's a lot coming at them. And, and in your role, it sounds like you spent a considerable amount of time building not only the capacity of others, but your own capacity to be able then to build the capacity of others and really be excelling and functioning in the teacher leadership role. So what about those experiences 
drove you to, to reach higher. Now, I, I, I know that your principal, uh, Mr. Burton, was definitely a big influence. But addition, in addition to that, what was what were those things that that experiences that drove you to continue reaching higher and higher? You know, I tell uh, educators today that sometimes we wonder why we end up in jobs that we end up in. And I always say they're just preparation things to prepare you for the next role that you'll take on. And I really do believe that. So it was these daily experiences that ignited my need to learn more. So, of course, I returned to school. As so many educators do, we're all we're learners. So I needed to learn more about special education. So I took courses uh, that I hadn't received in my master's program to learn more about working with children with severe learning disabilities and emotional issues. And then I took some counseling courses so I could better support children and their families who had problems that interfered with the student learning. And then I I would want to go to conferences, but I was always teaching or working as a reading specialist in classrooms. So I started using any personal days I was allowed uh, to go to professional conferences to learn as much as I could about literacy. Because I realized that in an elementary school, we spend so much of our day in activities and in teaching around literacy. So For the 18 years that I spent in schools as a paraprofessional and a teacher and a reading specialist, all of that was my strong foundation for my next move. And so after and during that time, right at the last few years of, of working as a reading specialist, we lost Title I funding for our students because of changing demographics in our school. Now, that doesn't mean you lose the students who need those services, they were still there. It's all based on, as we know, free and reduced lunch count. <clears throat> so I found myself going to the principal and saying, how do we serve our students with less resources and less support? So I began reading everything I could on parent volunteer programs. And I searched the library. I called colleagues who had had parent volunteer programs in their school and doing my research and with the support of the principal, I discerned a parent program. And the program included parents and grandparents who could support teachers in the classroom with academic responsibilities, but also support the office staff and the PTA. And the program became such a huge success. Uh, We had over 125 part-time volunteers, business partnerships, and parent programs and services. So I began to realize that as educators, it's more than just the instructional piece. There's all this community piece that's so important to our work. So glad you mentioned that, Jackie, because um, especially in an era where we're focusing on teacher leaders, because what you're saying speaks to how teacher leaders can impact family engagement. And it also shows that you were functioning within the then ISLIC standards, which became the PSL standards, even as a teacher leader. So... So based on those experiences, it sounds to me that you are already doing a a major leadership role, even before PCL and ISLIC were coded. So here you are immersed in family engagement, working with internal and external stakeholders. Let's focus on what it meant for you to be able to impact families and how that impacted your journey to school leadership. Well, you know, I'm so familiar with those PSL standards and, and of course, with the ESLEC standards that preceded them. And I always say those standards balance on two columns, one of which is 
the academic press, those academic areas, but also the other column, which is so important, is the care of our children, our teachers, our families, our community. And so I learned, I learned through my work um, how important it was to engage families and communities uh, to build the culture we need so that we can have a supportive environment in our school for teaching and learning. So this became my catalyst to go back to school again <clears throat> with the encouragement of my principal at that time, John Young, and get my certification to be an assistant principal. Remember, sometimes we know we need to do these things and sometimes we get a little tapped uh, and my, my principal was tapping me. So I was already doing much of the work of an assistant principal, so I might as well consider a more formal role. So I went back to Salisbury University and applied uh, and got my certification. Then I applied for my first assistant principal position. So Lord Baltimore was going to have a new unit for that position. And I just felt sure I could continue to do my work in that school with my principal. But to my disappointment, another assistant principal in the district asked to transfer to Lord Baltimore. So I was assigned to take the job of an elementary school principal in the job where that assistant principal was leaving. And it was a school 25 miles away in our district. I wasn't familiar with that community, but wow. And I really mean, wow. Although I was disappointed, it was the best thing that could have happened to me at this time. I was moving from an elementary school of 500 students to one with 1,200 students and two assistant principals and a principal. So I had an administrative team and the school was much more diverse with a large English second language population. It was a school where I had to provide um, <clears throat> to myself and to others, those skills and knowledge to be an instructional leader and a manager. So I didn't know the community, didn't know the teachers and the schools and the family. This was a time in my career that I began to realize that I had to learn again. And I had to go back to school, I had to, but I also had to learn from the staff, the parents and the community. So not only did I go back to school, but I began riding school buses and talking. I'd sit behind the bus driver and talk to the bus driver about these communities where there are bus rides and these, believe me, bus drivers know everything. And then I would meet uh, with teachers in small groups, like grade level groups, like go have coffee with them in the morning and just have informal meetings with teachers. I met with the parent groups and focus groups. I met with the cafeteria staff. I would bring in donuts. I knew I had to learn my community. I needed, as my uh, staff always says, oh, Jackie's doing her history lesson. She's getting the history. So I did all this, but I also realized I needed to go back to school and pursue my doctorate, okay? Because I knew I had so much more to learn, to grow. Wow, Jackie, just up to this point in your career, I'm thinking, gosh, I need to be a principal still longer than, than what I've been doing for 13 years. <laughs> There's so much more that I have left to do and, and to be able to learn from, from you and, and just the, the outlook that you had and under that you're always a learner, right? And again, I think that this podcast <laughs> is speaking to me personally because I'm in that transition of within the next year or so starting my doctorate and I've put in, you know, we talked about those tensions earlier about when is the right time and is this for me? 
and to hear your story and say, you know, wait a minute, if Jackie can do it, I can do it. And so thank you for that. And it's so impressive that you were able to do all of these things, um, meet with teachers, ride the buses, be doing your history lesson learning, right? Um, and engaging families and still enroll in a doctorate program, which in and of itself is a monumental task. So talk to us about, about that and where that move took you on the and, and your journey of, of your educational journey and, and specifically in leadership. Yeah. So I spent six years at this school, Georgetown Elementary School, as the assistant principal. And, and I was getting my doctorate, I was still trying to manage my, uh, my personal life. Um, um, but I, I was learning. I was learning. And if we're learners, and most of us are learners, I was learning a lot from the principal, who was a very different style leader than me. This principal was really a very strong manager of a very a challenging school, but he knew his community. <clears throat> and the assistant principal was just really this really uh, very strong in working with the community and with the students. But I brought something they needed, and that was my instructional expertise. So <clears throat> I continued my uh, to pursue my passion at this time. And I recognized an area that this, you know, which I was working on my doctorate on, on issues around early childhood, which would always been a passion, but I found this perfect place, this school where I could fo focus my doctoral studies on how childcare settings impacted children's readiness for school. I was in a community with more diversity, greater need for services for students who came to school, not ready to learn. So it was a great place for me to continue to learn and grow and get engaged in things like the Head Start programs and the community and faith-based groups that were providing so many before and after school programs and care. So I did graduate with my ADD while working at Georgetown. I had been there for six years and I felt that urge, Jessica, the one that you're feeling about maybe it's time for a change. So I thought I'm ready to be a principal. But an assistant principal position came up at the school that I had left, um, where I had always wanted to be the principal. <clears throat> and I thought, well, I have to be patient and I can go back because Mr. Burton, who had been my first principal, had been assigned to that school as the principal because it was a time in the district where there was a lot of unrest with the superintendent and they were punishing the superintendent by dismantling his executive team and moving them back into schools. Those things happened. That was another learning for me, but I knew I could go back and learn from Mr. Burton. So I applied for the job and I went back and worked under Mr. Burton for a year and learned so much from this very experienced leader. But he decided to retire. And so I was moved into the position. Um, I was moved into that position of principal. So, but I was, I knew that I was returning to a community that I knew it was where I lived. Um, and that whole year working with Mr. Burton, we co-led the school. He would say, come on, Jackie, come down to my office. I want to show you something. Come on down to my office, Jackie. I want you to watch when I, when I do this. And I knew what he was doing. He was preparing me to become the principal. He knew he wasn't going to be staying. So it was a marvelous year for me, but knowing the community is one thing, but to returning to a school where you have worked with teachers who have been your colleagues and friends, and now you are going to be their supervisor 
was a little bit more challenging than I had anticipated. So after Mr. Burton retired, after one year, I applied for the job. I got the job and I was uh, asked by the superintendent to leave the change that this school needed. But the question I had to ask myself is, I'm ready to lead, but is this staff ready for me to lead? Because after reviewing the data of this school, I knew I had some real challenges and and. and in my very first year, the newspaper reported that the test scores for the school, Lord Baltimore was in the bottom five in test scores. I knew that my tenure as principal was not going to be easy. Most certainly, because now you have to uphold these teachers who are feeling so dejected. Um, so it really pulled on that leadership. So. I can relate to how daunting that experience is because I've, I've walked that journey and, and how as a leader, you have to intensify your focus, um, shift the focus, um, maintain staff morale so much. So how did your staff and you handle that experience? You know, Andrea, this is when I was so glad I had so much experience as a classroom teacher that I had been a literacy specialist, that I had been a teacher leader because this was going to be a big job and I needed to have the experience to lead this kind of change because the teachers cried. They were embarrassed. Um, the superintendent was meeting with me regularly concerned about those test scores and I'm a brand new principal. So I, I decided to approach this as I do most things. Let's collaborate Let's investigate and let's learn together how to improve the school. So I took teachers to conferences on school improvement and on school reform models. I wrote grants so we could have funds to explore models and frameworks to consider. We took trips to other schools and took detailed notes. What are they doing that we're not doing? What are we doing that they're not doing? What do we need to let go of? What do we need to add? We met, I conducted surveys, I talked to teachers, I talked to parents. I met with students every week at lunch for lunch talks to hear from children. They can tell you so much about the school. We analyzed our data. We participated in professional learning after school and in the evenings with dinner provided by local restaurants who had kids in our school because they knew what we were doing. They had read the surveys, but in five years, we, I, I didn't call it turnaround. I didn't call it school improvement. I called it redesign. We're going to redesign our school on behalf of our children. And we improved programs for all students. We serve students with disabilities better. And we receive recognition as a U.S. Department of Education, National Blue Ribbon School of Excellence. So the staff saw that their hard work, their effort, the community celebrated let me tell you, realtors were sending bouquets of flowers. You know, it was clear that all this hard work um, was being rewarded and that and even the teachers who had not been as supportive of some of these initiatives, they made decisions about whether they wanted to stay or that they wanted to go. And so it was an exciting time for us, but we embraced this change and celebrated this. And we knew now our job was to maintain that success. 
Wow, Jackie, that's that is an incredible story that you share, and um, and I'm sure that it was not an easy task. I mean, five years, right? You don't just redesign a school from one year to the next; it takes time, and and along the way, there's those challenges that not everybody's has the same mindset as you do, or is willing to work as hard as as you're willing to push. Um, so, from a school perspective, you're going to find that, and you find that no matter what level you go to. But now that you've shared our, your story with us at all your experience leading up to the principalship. And as we talked about next steps, let's shift our focus to the work at the national level. How did that come about from leaving Lord Baltimore? And then how do you get, how did you get so involved in the national work? Well, my success at Lord Baltimore provided me opportunities because um, I would get, the superintendent would ask me to be on special assignments. So I would lead district committees on shared decision-making. That's what they called it at that time. Running district summer school programs, uh, get asked to serve on state committees. And I was very involved uh, on committees with our Department of Education uh, in Dover and with our Delaware uh, uh, our Delaware School Administrators Association, which is actually a, an affiliate for NAESP. So I served and I served on the Professional Standards Board, which was very engaged in making regulations around uh, and policy. And I began to realize, oh, my goodness, if you want things to stick, you need to get involved with policy because that's how you sustain the work. So I was um, that also resulted in me being selected uh, the next year as Delaware's um, NAESP, the Elementary Principals Association's National Principal of the Year, which was probably one of the most exciting um, exciting awards I ever received to represent the elementary principals for our state, but then to be in D.C. with outstanding principals across the country. So that network for me was getting bigger. I was meeting people and I was learning from people. And that thirst for knowledge, learning that a principal in California or a principal in Montana or a principal, you know, in Boston, you know, in, in uh, Massachusetts, I could learn from these individuals. So. Uh, I, so I was ce- celebrating all this wonderful thing and remembering, and this is so important for principals, that when you do well, it's not you doing well by yourself. You have to acknowledge the team that helped you accomplish that. So celebrating with my staff, with my community, with my students was important. But with this recognition of our work, I was recruited to go work with the Secretary of Education. Um, Our school had been doing great work, moving a school from the bottom five to the number one uh, draws a lot of attention to your work. So I joined uh, the Delaware Department of Education um, as the Director of Professional Accountability. And this is where um, the Secretary said to me, I need someone who really knows schools, Jackie. You know schools. And she asked me to be uh, responsible for licensure and certification of educators, professional development, uh, the uh, assessments like practices that were going to measure the competence of our leader, uh, leaders and our teachers, uh, how we were giving feedback, performance evaluation, and um, to look at school leadership. The, the state was really beginning to look at school leadership and those barriers to having great principals in every school. So it was an opportunity for me to learn more about state and national policy and to work with districts, charter schools, and our higher education partners. I tell you, Jackie, I'm so glad you are talking about 
that shift from building leadership to say district leadership on up to state leadership, because we talk about that in, in the book, She Leads, and in our, um, in our book talks that the center does. So a, a, a lot of women are going along that journey, but they need to know how to navigate that journey. So share that with us. How did you navigate the journey? You got there. Our our first inclination is to go in and change things. And I have learned that that is the greatest way to lose talent. But and that there the policies and practices are, are in place for a reason. So I had to listen and learn from the people who were already in that job. Here I was coming out of a district in a school, and I'm now at the Department of Education with people who had been there long before I arrived. And they were wondering, okay, what is she going to be coming here and changing? That's the first thing. <clears throat> so I said to them, we're going to have history lessons. We So every Friday, I would get coverage so that every single secretary, administrative assistant, um, ed associate could be in a room together, and we would take on one or two topics and talk about why we do it this way, is this the right way to do it, and if you could change things, what would we change? And we did that, and so we, I spent that whole first year just... Again, I can't say enough about don't go in and try to change things right away. You have to listen and you have to learn. So I also learned that I had to work within a political system because in Delaware, our secretary of education is appointed by the governor. So that makes things differently. So I in turn was also working for the governor. And so I had to learn how to work with legislators, the press, the business directors in the state the HR, human resource directors in the state. And I had, and so I really, and I had to look at what kind of data had been collected. There was a wonderful report that had been done the year before I arrived that had dust on it. No one had really done anything with it. So I read that, I took all the reports home and I read them and said, oh my goodness, there's lots of recommendations in here. And this one report uh, was a time when there was an opportunity to apply for Wallace Foundation dollars who were focusing on state policy that would change standards, training programs, and working conditions for school leaders. So for the next 10 years, on behalf of the Department of Education, I would focus on, with my other responsibilities, on how I could begin to give principals what I always needed and wanted uh, and how And so we focused on succession planning, principal pipelines, distributed leadership, teacher pathways, licensure and certification, you know, standards alignment and how to make our preparation programs stronger and have more quality. So it was such an exciting time to be at the department uh, and have this funding from the Wallace Foundation to invest in our ideas. And uh, at that time, that hard work really paid off because uh, the, sometimes people uh, districts see the department as regulatory and not a place of innovation, and it should be a place where innovation happens. And I believe that's one of the things I was able to accomplish and was awarded the Second Mile Award and the Secretary of Education's Award of Excellence. Um, but I think the greatest accomplishment for me in navigating all that is, was when I was asked on my um on my last day at the department to come over to Legislative Hall and uh, 
the head of uh, the education committees for both the House and the Senate uh, presented me with a proclamation um, for being a being able to work together with legislators, with the department, with districts, with our ed to get stuff done. And I think, you know, how do we get things done? It is really through collaboration and partnerships. So it was during this time that I retired, tried to retire. Let's say I failed retirement. And I went to work for a a small private university, Wilmington University, and I just was going to teach. I'm a teacher. Remember, I'm a teacher. And I was just going to teach. I thought. Well, with with all of your experience, uh, I don't think you're just going to teach. (laughs) That's impossible to just go and teach. And uh, to, you know, congratulations on all those recognitions. It's I I am I'm certain that uh, you made such a huge impact. And just listening here to your story continues to inspire me to keep pushing and keep learning. And so with your retirement from the K-12 landscape, you shifted to higher ed because you thought you were just going to teach. (laughs) How, How did you manage to still keep the national presence even though you had stepped away from the national platform per se? Well, one of the things I have learned is sometimes for departments of education, and particularly because many times they're so political, that they can get more work done outside of the department. That's why you'll find the department reach out with partners. So the Secretary of Education had asked me to continue to manage the Wallace Grant while I was at Wilmington University. And the university allowed me to do that. So I stayed at Wilmington for about two years, teaching classes and managing this Wallace Grant, which was doing a lot of work for the secretary, uh, testing ideas with school districts on trying trying things, trying innovations. And then I got recruited to join uh, the University of Delaware as both a faculty member, an assistant professor, and teach classes in their master's and doctor, but also be an associate director at the Delaware Academy for School Leadership. Now, the, we call it Dazzle, but that is a center uh, that does professional development with school leaders, but also policy recommendations and research. So, you know, and it was a perfect time because the director at that time had been a former superintendent and he really knew our large county of Newcastle County. He knew all the superintendents, all the principals. He did not know the middle of the state and the southern part of the state which I knew well. So we were pretty a really great team in saying that the center needs to service the whole state, not just one county, and to be able to provide opportunities. And we had funding from the Wallace Foundation to continue that work uh, because the Wallace Funds followed me because we were still doing this great work. So we continue to do this work. And uh, over the years, Uh, tested a lot of ideas in school districts across the state. So the first five years, we had the Wallace funding to support ideas, and we had a small funding line for the state. But over the years, as that state funding line decreased, and uh, the Dazzle gets a small amount of money from the state, uh, and our grant cycle was ending with Wallace, I found myself now, the director was retiring, I was being asked to be the new director, and I had no funding. No funding. And I've been giving away professional development and coaching services for free. So I read this great book called Free, which talks about that sometimes we give things away for free, 
like a cell phone, but then people pay for the service. And I thought, you know, we're doing great work. And if if the work we're doing is really this important, then our partners will pay for it as long as we provide them high quality and at a fair and affordable price. So I redesigned our the way we did business at, at Dazzle. And we shifted to a fee-for-service model. Uh, and we began applying for RFPs uh, with the state of Delaware. This was during Race to the Top. Uh, RFPs, and we started contacting our district partners and looking at work outside of Delaware. So we began, and I had this wonderful network of districts that I had worked with through the Wallace Network, who knew my work, knew my reputation. And um, so during that time, we really expanded our work outside of the state. And uh, I began to do some work with our with our partners. Um, with some partners who I had built some relationships with. So I began to do some uh, consulting work with NAESP and some with the American Association for School Administrators. That's the superintendent's organization, the Council for Chief State School Officers. Uh, And then I took on the role of executive director of the National Policy Board because during that time at the university, I had been asked to co-chair the committee that actually designed uh, and developed the PSAL standards and the NELP standards, uh, which are the national school leader standards. So the, all of this was like the perfect time where all of these things were kind of intersecting. And it was an opportunity for me to continue to do my work at the academy, but also begin to step outside of our state and have a, a much bigger um, reach uh, across the country. Wow, Jackie, you now you you see why I have followed stalked you for years <laughs> <laughs> because as a woman who was stepping into leadership, I needed a role model, and I needed someone who could do this with grace and humility, which is what I saw in you over the years as I would work and see you in the same space with me. And I say, that's why I want to be a mentor. Didn't even know you were mentoring me. See, mentees can select their mentors too. <laughs> yes, they can. <laughs> and I'm like, that's what I want to be with. So here's the thing, Jackie. So it sounds as though you've had a wonderful career and you have, even though you keep saying you're retired, which is so funny to me. But um. It's filled with opportunities. You've talked about how to grasp opportunities, look for opportunities, and most of all, to prepare for them. Because so many times you've gone back to learn, which is what we're talking about with women in our center. So, Jackie, in summary, what would you say to women in leadership about at least five of your big takeaways? Um, Andrew, I have had a marvelous career and um, and I've been very fortunate. And But I think uh, we have to be fearless as women, particularly. So if I were to give uh, women out there some some advice or guidance of things that are really been important, part, don't ever forget the power of partnerships and collaboration. You can't do it all by yourself. So get you know, get buy in to sustain your work, build trusting relationships. It is essential. You can't roll that big ball up the hill by yourself. So get a, have a team and do that. The other is be creative. Don't look at things and say, oh, I can't do that. There's a barrier. 
see those barriers as opportunities. Be entrepreneurial. Don't let what's been done in the past, like the lack of resources or lack of buy-in, prevent you from seeing possibilities of improving things, including yourself, and find ways around them and turn those obstacles into opportunities. The other thing is I think we all have a responsibility, and I know for women sometimes this is hard, we have to grow other leaders. Create a team of talented, potential people around you and give them opportunities to grow and and mentor them and find yourself a mentor and a coach who's going to push you to to try things, to have the confidence you need to help you become a problem solver. The other thing I say is work hard. I know sometimes as women, we have to work a little harder. So, and I, and not make excuses. You know, I hear many women say, well, I didn't get the job because I didn't have enough experience in finance. And they always see women as curriculum people. Well, if you know that, go partner with the finance director and say, I need you to teach me everything you know. You know, or if you don't know, if you know, if you don't know how, you know, how school boards operate, then start attending school board meetings and, and learn how that governance works, but work hard. And don't be afraid to surround yourself with people who are smarter than you and people who don't agree with you because it's some of those people who push me to be, bet, be better. And I would say the advice my father always gave to me and I have never forgotten, and I was very young. He said to me, you don't go get the knowledge you need when the job comes. You better already have that. So get that certification, get that skill set so that when that job you've always dreamed of comes before you, you've already got all the certifications, the knowledge, those internship experiences that you're going to need to sit in that interview and advocate why you're the best person for that job. Uh, so, I, you know, that would be my advice, you know, is be ready, be ready when those opportunities come. And we couldn't have summed it up any better, Dr. Wilson. Really, uh, what an incredible journey you've led um, and what a true honor it's been to be able to have you on our podcast today. Um, For me personally, this has been very encouraging to me and and I know that it's been to so so many um, to know that the road to leadership isn't always as straight as we'd hoped for or that we thought it would be. And uh, your 45 years of experience in education as a starting as a secretary, paraprofessional, teacher, reading specialist, assistant principal, principal, director, of professional accountability, um, serving as a faculty member at the University of Delaware, that gives us so much to learn from. And then now, so you're currently the executive director of the National Policy Board for Educational Leadership. Is that right? That is correct. <laughs> yes, right. And just to think about the huge role you have in supporting the advancement of school and school system leadership at the national level. I'm in California, you know, you're on the other side of the, of the country. And yet I can take it. I can take, be, get the reap the benefits of the hard work that you're doing at the national level. And thank you for that. And, um, One of the things I wanted, you mentioned it earlier, but we're super excited to know that you're currently under contract 
right? With yes. Corwin for a book. And you mentioned Gary Bloom, your writing partner earlier, uh, around the, the idea of blended coaching, right? So you talked about, can you be, you know, and we were having a conversation earlier about, um, can you be a supervisor and a coach at the same time, right? What those skills and strategies to support that development uh, is so key. So I know the book is scheduled to be out in August of this year, 2023. And I know I speak for Andrea. We cannot wait to get our copy. <laughs> uh, yeah, we cannot wait. And really, uh, Dr. Jackie Wilson, it has been a true pleasure to learn from you and your words of wisdom and your story will continue to impact many women in leadership. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story with us today. Sure, Jessica. Thank you and Andrea for giving me this opportunity to just kind of tell you the long and winding road it's been. And I guess there's still a little bit of work that's still left to be done. There's always work to be done. Always work to be done on behalf of women in this country. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You're a role model. Thanks.